And in verse 19, we do read, And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, that is Jesus. But they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So as we open up the chapter, we know that Jesus, he is in Jerusalem. It's during the week of Passover. He's only a few days from going to the cross. And he is teaching the people, the last verse, matter of fact, of chapter 19 and in verse 48, that it tells us that the people were very attentive to hear him. In other words, they're listening to every word that he is saying. They are hanging on every word that he, he is preaching to them. And then as you open up chapter 20 in verse 1, that it was Jesus there at the temple proper. He's teaching the people the gospel, the good news. And we know that it's at that time that the religious leaders come to Jesus saying, tell us by what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? And so he had come into Jerusalem a couple days before this and his triumphal entry, the whole city was moved. The people are waving palm branches. They're crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is the Lord who comes uh, and saves. Save now, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, King of Israel, Son of David, ascribing those terms of Messiah to him. And the religious leaders are upset. They're saying, tell your disciples, be quiet. And Jesus said, if they are quiet, the very rocks are going to cry out. And then it would be the next day that Jesus, seeing what has taken place there in the temple with all the selling of the sacrifices and the exchange of money, how the religious leaders were really uh, ripping the people off. He comes in and he cleanses the temple, doesn't he? And he overturns the money changers' tables. He drove out those who sold sheep and, and doves for sacrifices. And he would rebuke them again publicly by saying that you've made my house a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So now they come as Jesus is teaching. I imagine it's a large crowd, the gospel, the good news. And the religious leaders come to him publicly and they say, who gave you this? What authority do you do these things? And then second of all, who gave you this authority? And as Jesus would then ask him about the ministry of John the Baptist, did it come from God or was he just uh, a man out there in the wilderness doing his own thing? And they refused to answer him. Now, in verse 1, it tells us that it was the chief priests, the scribes, together with the elders. Don't just think that it's five, six, you know, religious leaders that are there. There's a whole bunch of them dozens of them. The elders would be the ones of the Sanhedrin Council. We know that there are 70 members that made up the Sanhedrin Council. And then you have uh, the others that are here, the scribes. We don't know how many, but there's a number of them. And they come and they start demanding an answer from Jesus. What authority do you do this? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus, when he would address the, the ministry of John the Baptist, they refused to answer because they feared the people. And Jesus then turned to the people and he told that parable, the wicked vine dresser, that there is an owner of a vineyard that leased it out to these vine dressers. And then when it come to vintage time, that he was to gather what belonged to him to receive uh, the benefits of them working the land, those vine dressers. He sent a servant and they persecuted the servant. They beat him and cast him out. And not just once, but three times. And as the people are listening to that, they're thinking, you know, what kind of owner would put up with that? 
but it really gives a picture of our loving Father who is patient and long-suffering. And then what will the owner do? Jesus continues with that parable. He'll send his own son. They'll respect him. They'll reverence him. But they didn't. And they ended up killing him. So Jesus said there's going to be consequences, that the owner will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard that, they said, certainly not. And then Jesus would continue to address them. So as we pick it up, uh, they knew the people that they, uh, Jesus had spoken this parable against them. The chief priests and the scribes are wanting to lay hands on him. And so they come as they're plotting against Jesus. How can we accuse him? How can we trap him? How can we get our hands on him? We can't because of the people here. So the tension is really growing. It's coming to a boiling point. Point where the, with the religious leaders. So what did they do? Well, verse 20, as we continue, they watched him. And I just want to stop at this point and remind us that as we read here, as the enemies of Jesus are plotting and planning, and now we're told they are watching him, that we have an enemy that does the same thing with you and me. We have an adversary that comes against us. We know that it is Satan, the scripture says, and he studies us. He, he considers us. We know that from Job chapter 1. Remember Job? That in chapter 1, there's this heavenly scene that is playing out, and there is Satan that is before God. And God said, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? How he's blameless, and he's upright, and he fears me, and he shuns evil. And Satan said, yes, I have considered him. And that's a very important word, consider, because it's a military term. What Satan was saying, yes, I've studied him. I have considered him. And you see, Satan does the same thing with you and me. He will study us how he can get a foothold into our lives. He is the father of lies. He's a destroyer. He's a murderer, is what Jesus said. He's a roaring lion, as Peter writes, seeking whom he may devour. And he wants to trap us. He wants us to fall prey to him. He is deceptive. He wants to get a foothold into our lives, into the lives of our family, our kids, and in the life of this church and we need to understand that he is watching us and he is plotting how he might be able to get you know into our lives to where he comes in and he wants to destroy our lives and that's why Paul would write to the Corinthian church don't be ignorant of Satan's devices and in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to resist the schemes of the devil So they are watching him just as we have an enemy that is watching us. Be sober, be vigilant is what we are told over and over again in the New Testament. And as Peter said, because we have that adversary, Satan, who is watching us. Listen, don't go to sleep spiritually. And don't go into his territory, the enemy's territory, because he's looking to rip your head off. And he's looking to really destroy your life and to destroy your marriage, your family. He desires to destroy this church. So we stay close to the Lord. We put on the armor of God and we are to submit to God, resist the devil and the promises that he will flee from us. So they watched him, these religious leaders, and they sent spies. Verse 20 goes on to say, who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. So here's the deception. They send spies to pretend to be righteous. Now, we should know that spying on Jesus is not going to work, is it? And pretending to be righteous, he knows their hearts. He knows what it is that they're up to. 
And listen, you can pretend to be spiritual, to be righteous. You can pretend to be a Christian to your family, to friends, to coworkers, to your brothers and sisters here, to me. But God really knows your heart. You cannot fool him. He knows your heart better than you do. So you can fool others, but you will never fool God. And as they come pretending to be righteous, that they might seize on his words to trap him, they want to deliver him over to Rome. In verse 21, as we continue to read, that says, Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a Daenerys. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. So there are two subjects that we know that when we gather with friends or family members that will cause arguments and all kinds of different opinions and heated discussion. And those two subjects are religion and politics, right? And everybody can be getting along. You can talk about the weather. You can talk about the latest trend. You can talk about, you know, the Broncos and the upcoming season. But you bring up the subject of religion and politics or the Bible and taxes. All of a sudden, you know how it causes tension and debate. And, and it can cause problems uh, as you bring it up. Don't talk to me about the Bible. Perhaps you have friends or your family says. Don't talk to me about religion. Don't talk to me about God. And the politicians this, and they just want to raise taxes. So it causes a heated discussion. And what these religious leaders are doing is they're thinking, we will ask him this question in front of the whole multitude that is here, and he will have to answer us in a manner of taking Rome's side, the government side, or God's side. They come to him, they begin to butter him up. You teach rightly. You show no favoritism. You teach the way of God and truth, which, by the way, is all true. But, of course, they're being deceptive in saying that. They are not coming to him of the mindset of, we are religious men, godly men, with a real conviction, and we want to please God in our lives. Is it right to pay tribute taxes to Rome, to Caesar? They, of course, are coming presenting this question in a way that is very deceptive because they want to destroy him. They want to trap him. They want to find a reason to hand him over to Pilate. Now, Jesus, knowing their hearts, their craftiness, he knows their hearts. He knows what it is that they're up to. Now, same thing can happen with you and me. People can come to us, and maybe they want to argue with us or try to trap us as Christians. We don't always know their hearts, and they can come, and they can begin to kind of butter us up, and, and, and then they want to go for the kill, you know? They, they want to go for that question or to begin to argue, to try to confuse you. And people will use that method, and that's what they are doing here. They're trying to set Jesus up. Hey, you teach rightly. You teach the way that is true. You show no favoritism. You know, is it lawful to pay taxes to Rome? And it's a losing battle. It doesn't work. Can you imagine trying to catch God in his words and trying to trick him? And that's what they are doing. 
They are trying to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma here. And we are told in Matthew and Mark that it was the Pharisees and the Herodians that posed this question to Jesus. Here, Luke records it's the chief priests and the scribes. Now, there are all kinds of the sects of uh, religious you know, orders and, and groups. You had the Pharisees, you have the scribes. The scribes were the ones, the lawyers might be in your Bible, were the ones that interpreted the scriptures. So they took the law of God, they interpreted it even further out how it is that we are to keep the law in minute details. So the Pharisees, the Pharisee means separated ones. They would come on the scene right about the time of of the Maccabean revolt. But they would say, we are the separated ones. We are going to keep every minute detail of the law that the scribes have interpreted. And it tells us historically that many of the scribes would join that sect of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, 6,000 in number at this time. And the Pharisees did not like the fact that the people of Israel had to pay taxes to Rome, to the emperor. It was an affront to them. It was repulsive to them to pay to give tribute to a foreign power. The Herodians that would come, they were made up mostly of the Sadducees. Now, we haven't really talked a lot about the Sadducees, but they were mostly of the chief priests. The Sadducees were one that we're going to talk about more in detail next time because when Jesus gets through with these guys, we're going to see that the Sadducees are going to come and and ask him a question about the resurrection. But we'll see that next week. But the Sadducees were more political, and many of the Herodians were of the Sadducees. So you got all these religious sects and and political, you know, uh, groups and all of this. And they, the Sadducees, sought more to have political favor with Rome. They had an audience with Pilate. They sought to appease Rome, to work with them. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees who made up the elders, the elders, another term of the Sanhedrin Council, the Jewish Supreme Court that's going to condemn Jesus to death in just a few days are made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, and they didn't like each other. The Pharisees didn't like the Herodians. The Herodians didn't like the Pharisees. But interesting, they are coming together in a common cause to try to destroy Jesus, to try to trap him here. Same thing happens today, doesn't it? You can have groups that don't like each other, don't have anything to do with each other, but they will come together in a common cause to come against you, to come against you as a Christian, to come against the Bible, to come against Christianity, to come against churches, and they will band together to try to do away with Christianity as a whole here in our nation and around the world. So those groups will do that. And so here they're doing that, and they asked them this question. Hey, you're the guy who teaches rightly. You're a respecter of no person. You teach the truth. You know that there's a large crowd that is listening and watching very carefully all of this playing out. You know that they are listening intently. Because if I had Jesus here behind this pulpit, and I asked him, should we pay taxes? Should I be a Democrat or a Republican or something else? Every single one of you would wake up. Every single one of you would get at your attention and you'd be leaning forward and I got to hear what he had to say. Well, that's what's happening here in the temple court. 
They are listening intently. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're being tricky in that. It has to be one or the other. It has to be Caesar, the government, or not. And they're probably thinking, we got him. We got him because the people are listening to him. If he says, yeah, you need to pay taxes to, to Caesar, then the crowd's going to turn from him. They hated paying taxes to Rome, but it was more than that. They had just seen Jesus come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The previous chapter tells us that the people were expecting him to usher in the kingdom immediately. And they're thinking that he's going to overthrow Rome and usher in the kingdom of God and restore Israel. And they're probably being a little bit restless right now. When is he going to do that? We're expecting him to do that now. It should have been done last Sunday. If he says pay taxes, then the people are going to be confused and begin to walk away. And if they begin to walk away and murmur against Jesus, then the religious leaders are going to think, now we can get our hands on him without fearing the people, as verse 19 tells us that they were. But if he says, and this is the preferable choice because verse 20 tells us, that you are not to pay taxes, then what we're going to do is we, the Herodians, that are the political party, we're going to have an audience and go down and see Pilate and the Romans and say, you know, there's a guy, that, that guy that caused that big ruckus on Sunday riding into Jerusalem. The whole city was moved. He's down there at the temple today leading a rebellion against Rome. He's telling people not to pay their taxes, and you need to go and arrest him. You need to put him away. And they're hoping that's what's going to happen. You see, when Jesus goes on trial, the religious council, the Sanhedrin council, is going to condemn him. But when they take him to Pilate, they got to bring up civil charges to Rome. Pilate and Rome, they did not care that he claimed to be a Messiah. Pilate would tell the religious leaders, then you deal with him according to your laws. They had to bring up these trumped-up charges against Jesus when they brought him to Pilate. And we'll see that in chapter 23, where we'll see that the religious leaders say that Pilate were handing him over to you because he's perverting the nation and he's telling people not to pay their taxes to Rome, which was an outright lie, as we have already read the response of Jesus. You know, one thing that Rome hated... And that was someone that was leading a rebellion against them. Sedition was dealt with very harshly with Rome. And oftentimes, they would be crucified. Secondly, the Jews legally could not put Jesus to death, which was by means of stoning. Because in 13 AD, Rome said, you Jews cannot exercise the death penalty any longer. That is a clear discretion of Rome. Now, when Rome said that, what took place is the religious leaders were very upset. They actually went into a mourning period for the nation. And why did they do that? Because back in the book of Genesis, Jacob, when he was on his deathbed, you can write down Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 in your notes, that he prophesied that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, or that as Messiah comes. The scepter is the symbol of kingship. What it means, it's the ability to rule. You cannot rule if you cannot exercise judgment against your people and exercise the death penalty over the people. 
They saw that as an establishment of government to be able to judge the guilty and exercise the death penalty. And Jacob was prophesying that the ability to rule, the scepter will not depart until Shiloh comes or Messiah comes. So in 13 AD, when the Romans took that away from the Jews, that they could no longer legally use the death sentence, the Talmud, as well as Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that the high priest went throughout the streets of Jerusalem. He's wailing and he's weeping and he's throwing dust on his head and he's saying that the word of God has been broken because the scepter has departed from Judah and Shiloh has not come. But the high priest was wrong, wasn't he? Because he did not realize that in a little village up in the mountains of Galilee, in that place called Nazareth, that in a carpenter shop, there was the Messiah. Now, in the book of Acts, you might ask, well, they ended up stoning Stephen, the Jews. Stephen, the first Christian that's was martyred, uh, recorded there in the book of Acts as he stood before the council, gave that incredible testimony. They were so angry that they took him out and stoned him. They did that in complete rebellion. But legally, they were not to do that. Jesus here has all these people. They cannot even try to do that. And they are hoping that he says, don't pay taxes to Rome so they can hand him over to the authorities. And these religious leaders did not expect that there's going to be a third answer. They thought, pay taxes or not? And Jesus, the way that he answers, is absolutely amazing. First of all, I want to point out in verse 23 again that he perceived their craftiness. Matthew says that he perceived their wickedness. Mark records that he perceived their hypocrisy. Here Jesus calls them on what they are doing. Why do you test me? Matthew records, he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? And he's saying this in front of everyone. Now, the religious leaders thought that they had turned up the heat on Jesus by asking this question. We got him trapped. Now, Jesus has turned the tables on them, calls them out on their hypocrisy in front of everyone. At that point, he could have said, go away, you phonies. But he doesn't do that. And in verse 24, as we uh, read it again, he said, show me a Daenerys. And whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered, well, Caesar's. Matthew records something interesting. Matthew records, who's an eyewitness here. He says, show me the tax money. So the Daenerys that would be given to him, and I know that some of you really like to dig into these things, this probably would be the Tiberius Daenerys that was used, that was made from 14 to 37 AD. It is a silver coin. The Roman Senate only had the power to mint copper coins. Only the emperor could decree to mint silver or gold coins. So the denarii of Tiberius, on one side it would have the image of Tiberius and the words Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, it was ascribing divinity, deity to Caesar Tiberius. And on the other side of the coin, there's an image of Tiberius on his throne, declared to be the highest priest, uh, is the wording. So you can understand very clearly why the Jews 
considered that coin to be blasphemy. And this was the tax money that they were to pay once a year. Matter of fact, the tax rate at this time in Israel was about 50%. By the time they paid tribute to Caesar, by the time they paid sale taxes, uh, taxes on their crops, uh, the temple tax, the temple offering, um, all these things being exhorted, it is believed that half of what they made went to taxes. What is the interesting thing is when we were in Israel in February that I asked our tour guide, what is your tax rate here in Israel? He said about 50%. That's how high it is. And, of course, it covers so everybody gets, you know, health care and all of this. And, you know, you hear the term free health care. Nothing's free. Somebody's paying for it. So they pay for it through the taxes, but their tax rate really hasn't changed, you know, 2,000 years later, about 50%. And we grumble. Because we feel like we pay high taxes. But this tax was paid once a year to Caesar. It went to him. And Jesus' answer is amazing. The other Gospels tell us that he said, bring me this Daenerys. Whose image is on it? Well, Caesar's. And I just kind of picture Jesus, you know, flipping it back to whoever he borrowed it from. And said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. To God the things that are God's. And the people marveled at his answer. Listen, two points to this answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render means to give what is due. And what does the Word of God have to say about that when it comes to rendering to Caesar? Well, I think the Bible is very clear. In chapter 13 of Romans, many of you know the text. They let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And Paul goes on to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you. Talking about our peace officers. Talking about those who are in the military for us. If you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Then verse 6 of chapter 13 of Romans. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's minister. It's kind of hard to think that that IRS agent is a minister of God. But that's what it says here. Attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I know that as we look at government, that we get frustrated. And any of us that have to work with them can get very frustrated. We know that there's wasteful spending. We get that. We understand that. But also we can be thankful We can be thankful for the things that we have. We can be thankful in many ways for our nation. We can be thankful for our standing military that keep our borders safe and our interests. And I believe that they are some of the finest young men and women because they're all volunteers and they weren't drafted. They weren't forced to join. And we are safe meeting this morning in large part because of them. And some of those young men 
belong to this church and are doing an honorable work in protecting us. Our peace officers, I know they're not perfect, but they keep our community safe and we can pick up the phone and dial 911 and we can get help right away, can't we? You know, this week we were up in uh, the backside of the Wind River in Wyoming for a few days fishing and I took Sue and David and we went down this dirt road. Um, We're in over 20 miles on this dirt road and got a flat tire. So um, no cell phone service. You know, we got the jack out, had a heck of a time getting the spares down. Why do they make it so difficult, you know? (laughs) And actually, this couple from Boulder stopped and, uh, you know, helped us. We were very thankful. He was looking at it going, hey, dude, that's a bummer, man. Um, (laughs) And then he got in his car, and he couldn't get his car started. So it's just like we're in this black hole. And (laughs) we finally got out of there, but it's nice to know that you know, in normal circumstances, you can get help if you need it. And, and we got the services that we have. I'm thankful that we have clean water to drink. So we can enjoy and reap the benefits of what we render to Caesar. And we do have freedoms to meet here this morning. And I know that we're concerned that some of those freedoms are going to be taken away more and more. But you guys, listen, you can go home. And you can have roast pasta for brunch or for lunch. You really could do that. You do that in Iran to a Mahdi or to a Mullah, and you're going to go bye-bye. Paul and Peter tells us in God's word, honor the king and submit to the powers that be. And they wrote that when Nero was emperor, and both of them, Peter and Paul, were put to death by the powers that be because they would not submit to Nero who said, you need to acknowledge me as divinity, as deity, and you need to stop preaching the gospel. And he went against the Christians. And I'll tell you this, if the day comes where they tell me that I cannot preach the gospel or they tell us that we can't worship Jesus or that we can't teach our kids that God is the creator, if we can't declare that which is sin and there needs to be repentance of sin, then throw me in jail. And if you want to lop my head off, then lop my head off like they did Paul. But until that happens, we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and we as Christians should be the best citizens that there are. But that doesn't primarily concern me. I'll tell you what concerns me and should concern us the most. The second part of Jesus' answer. He said, render to God the things that are God's. And you and I were made in the image of God. And listen, we are so much more valuable than a coin. We were made in the image of God. He created us and then we rebelled. But did he let us go? Did he give us no hope? No. He sent his son to redeem us. And that's what Jesus is going to do here in just a few days from this time. He paid for us twice. He created us, and then we rebelled, and he redeemed us back to himself. Not with silver or gold, as Peter would write, but with the precious blood of Christ. 
little boy makes a boat. He sails it down the creek and it starts to rain and the creek, you know, swells up with water and takes it away. And he loses that boat that he had made. And then a couple days later, he's over. He looks in the window of a pawn shop. There's his boat. And he goes in and he says, that's my boat. Give me my boat. And the owner of the pawn shop said, listen, you need to buy that boat. So he goes out and he mows lawns and he does some chores and he comes back and he buys that boat and he comes out and he's overheard as he's holding that boat, you know, close to his chest saying, you're mine, you're mine, you're twice mine. I made you, I created you, and now I've bought you back. And the Lord desires to hold you close to himself as he said, I created you, I made you, and then I redeemed you as I sent my son. You were made in the image of God. He redeemed you with his precious blood, and you are to render your life to him. And if you're here and you have never done that, he loves you and he is your hope and salvation. He's your means of forgiveness is not found anywhere else. You are all of us to be his poem workmanship created. Paul writes for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should. You know, walk in them. He wants to save you if you haven't been saved and he desires for you to give him all of your life, your resources, your time, your gifts, your abilities, your devotion, your worship. In other words, he wants your heart. So the question is, as we go to the Lord here, are you holding back from him? Oh, we'll render the things to Caesar, all of us. We'll pay our taxes and we'll murmur about it and I'll be right there with you. But what about God? Are you rendering to him what is due him? And that is your heart and your time and your life to him. He's just not a part of your life. As I've always said, he is your life because he's given us eternal life. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time that we've had this morning. We thank you for... Lord, your love for us and sending your son to redeem us. So, Father, I just want to pray this morning. If there's anyone here listening on live stream or in the coffee shop or here in the sanctuary that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ for salvation, for forgiveness, it is Jesus, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He went to the cross for you. There is no other means of salvation. There's no other way for forgiveness. There's no other uh, source of eternal life. It is Jesus Christ and what he did for you, the Son of God, and rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot find it in a church. You cannot earn it yourself. It is surrendering your life to him and coming in faith. And today is the day of salvation. For you to quit going the direction that you're going, you were made in the image of God. The Bible says we have all rebelled and sinned, and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came to redeem you to himself, to give you life. So render your life to him. Call out to him right now. You say, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you would forgive me. I am a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. 
You were put into a tomb and you rose again. You're alive. And I ask that you would be the Lord and Savior of my life personally. Sit upon the throne of my life. And I render my heart to you. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to stay close to you. And I thank you for this new beginning. In Jesus' name. And listen, if you prayed that prayer as Pastor John's up front here, as we close the service, come up and tell him the decision you made. But for all of us, may we render to God the things that are his, and that is our lives, and not hold back. And in the honesty of our hearts right now, Lord, if we have done to where we hold back and we're just so distracted and caught up in the cares and the things of the world, Lord, that we would turn away from that. And Lord, that we would make you the priority. Father, you want so much for us. We're so much more valuable than any gold or silver. So Lord, we thank you that you proved your love for us, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we want to be used in these last days, a workmanship, a poem for good works for you. Lord, bless everyone here now as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?